It's the ones that are saying, I want to be healthier. I want to see what I can do. Maybe I want to reduce my nitrogen emissions that we may have to here in 2030 or whatever the number is. Do we do that strictly on nitrogen management? No, no. If anybody thinks that you just manage nitrogen based off nitrogen, then it's like saying, let's eat popcorn for 365 days a year, just popcorn, nothing else. The best way to harness the power of nitrogen, the Canadians are there. Place it properly, place it in the right time, place it in the right form. And then that one thing, place it in the right ratio, base us off what is gonna drive productivity. Hey now, it's Dan Aberhart here and welcome to the Growing the Future podcast where we talk to folks who like to innovate, collaborate, and transform the agricultural industry. Thanks so much for joining us for season five, episode 10. Look folks, in any business, there's inputs, processes, and outputs. Today's guest is a master of bringing inputs to agricultural production. Lord knows he's brought plenty to our family farm where this relationship began. But he's also a master of business processes given his success in building companies. That's why he's been an advisor on our board at Aberheard Ag for many, many years. So I guess you could say he's helped raise agricultural output at both the field level and the boardroom level. But before I introduce today's esteemed guest, as always, I'd like to remind you to check out the Aberhart family of companies online, starting with aberhartfarms.com, where we grow food to feed the world in Landyburg, Saskatchewan. SureGrowth.ca, where we offer precision agronomy consulting services. ConvergenceGrowth.com, where we accelerate solutions across food, health, and agriculture. And AberhartAgSolutions.ca, where we deliver one-of-a-kind fertility solutions of the future to your farm. And you can get notified by signing up for our new episodes and our newsletter at GrowingTheFuturePodcast.ca. My next guest has a proven track record that spans over two and a half decades of helping deliver real results to growers. He has a master in science in soil fertility and microbiology from the University of Manitoba. Over the last 16 years, he's focused on managing plant nutrition through the seed, soil, and the plant. Over the past five years, his focus has been to take the complexity of plant nutrition and organize it into an easy-to-use, agronomically sound system. I mean, how, do, how can we possibly try and sum up this guy's career? You're going to get a taste of it. Uh, today, folks, the accomplishments of this individual. And I think you're going to learn a lot. He's a co-founder of ATP Nutrition. Today, I wanted to talk to Jared about his career in agriculture, his experience growing companies, his experience in helping farmers grow more to feed the world. Welcome to the show, Jared Chambers. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be on. <laughs> <laughs> we have been waiting to do this a while, and, and we have a lot of fun working together. But I was thinking as you were coming on the show here, I mean, I think you've told me before, but take me back a little bit to, I mean, there must have been a young, early version of yourself who's gone out in the world and learned a lot through the School of Hard Knocks. Tell us a little bit about your own career, your journey, getting to where you are today. And then and then once we're up to speed, we'll start getting into the nitty gritty. Yeah. Well, great. We'll go way back after we finished my, my <laughs> master's in soil microbiology and fertility, I decided to spend a couple of years working in the retail market in Southern Manitoba, helped as a young agronomist on 21 different crops and realized at that point that I really didn't know a great deal. And so it was a massive learning curve, getting to understand the way a, a, a grower is wired. And I think that was the, the fundamental piece that I had, had limited to no experience on. And then I was very fortunate to actually work on a project that I was doing on the side 
during my graduate work, always seemed to have a side project going on somewhere. So I guess the <laughs> entrepreneurial started earlier. And yeah. that was a control release fertilizer product. Uh, today it's called ESN by Nutrium. And so I got to be the uh, agronomist product manager for that product for the fresh produce market in the United States. And then also the containerized nursery market. So with potted plants and then the professional golf course industry for the US. So did that roughly for about 10 years. And in that point there really got a chance to work the most intensively managed crops that consumers grow and then worked on the ultimate crop that's under stress, which is turf grass. I mean, think about taking a grass and growing it at five thirty seconds of an inch and then having 200 pound people walk across it three or four, 250 times a day <laughs> and then trying to figure out how do we keep it green. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And then working in potted plants, which was just think about the junipers and the cystina cherries and the dogwoods and thinking about fertilizing those. So really had a, a great upbringing and then did that for about a decade. And then, of course, it, the travel was just a little too much of the family. So I opted to come back to Canada because I was doing all this in the U.S. and kind of said, well, what did I learn from all this? And, and what I learned from all this is that even though I was working on control release nitrogen in all these markets I worked on, everybody was saying nitrogen is the easy nutrient to actually manage. It's how do we harness the power of nitrogen with proper nutrition on phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, calcium, magnesium, and the trace elements. And so what I kind of did was actually went to uh, what our customer in the US and actually said, I really uh, like what you're doing on fresh produce. Can I start a company in Canada to take my fresh produce learnings and put it onto wheat and canola? And then what I realized is when you dug into that, the real learnings was the golf course industry. And so my mentors, so to speak, for the markets that we're in right now are really not from the, the cereals and oil seeds and the row crops. It's really from the golf course industry and the fresh produce industry to say, how do we spoon feed a crop? How do we really harness the power of nitrogen? And that's through addressing all 17 or 18 essential nutrients. So I started Omex Canada. Uh, based off uh, my experience in the U.S. and built that up for, I believe, roughly 10 years. And then it was just time to kind of move even further down that and then started ATP Nutrition as well and did that for roughly eight years and then had a lot of investors wanting to get into the space, so decided to sell the business, stayed on. And then what we realized is the investors are great people. They didn't quite were aligned with our with our mission. So about a year or so later, came back to, to run the business again. And so now I've been running it here again for the last five, uh, just coming up on five years. Wow. Coming another five years. And in the meantime, had a lot of cool ideas that were outside the business. And so I got a couple other businesses as well that we started up as well. So there's a lot of different email addresses that we use. Holy doodle. I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted <laughs> just listening to this journey. Talk about energy. You said something, though, that really fascinated me that I wanted to unpack a little bit. When you talk about not knowing what you thought you knew or knowing more than you knew, like there's a point at which you start to realize, hey, there's a lot more going on here, especially in our youth. And you had that moment maybe early on. What is it that you didn't know that you started to realize, okay, I actually don't know that much here and there's a lot more to be learned? The way I look at it is one of the lines I've always used is agriculture is the, agriculture is the practical application of science. And so I break that into two buckets. I came out of school really trying to understand the science, plant nutrition, 
soil science, soil microbiology. So I felt I was quite comfortable in the science field, but did not have as much practical transfer over. What I've learned in the last, I guess it's now 33 years in the field or whatever it is, is a lot of people, we get caught in at the retail level where we, we really focus on the practical side, which is great, by the way. Like this jug of herbicide treats 40 acres. And that's really important. But what I try to get our team around is why are we even using that herbicide to begin with? Or how do we use that herbicide? So I really obsess with trying to combine the practical and the science. And again, being working with very large, I was very fortunate early on working with large potato growers, large corn growers in Southern Manitoba. And then all of a sudden, you, next thing you know, you're working with fresh produce. And if you go to the fresh produce store, Fresh Express, Tanamir and Anno, D. Regal Brothers, Duda Brothers, these were our customers, like growers that have three or four jets that are knocking out 3,000 acres of lettuce because the price went down $2 an acre and that's $20 a box, like you're talking $20,000 an acre and they're knocking out 2,000 acres because the market's not right. That's when you start to realize that there's the science, there's the practical, and then there's the business. You take a golf course industry where the way the golf course industry works in, in a simple thing is you think about the greens committee and you think you have this committee, they go golfing, we'll just pick a day every Friday morning. And that superintendent who maintains that golf course, it's judged in a warm season grass 52 times a year. His, biz, his, his, his employee reviews 52 times a year. That grass better be perfect on Friday morning when the greens committee is coming out. The ball wash has got to be perfect. T-Boss got to be perfect. Divot's got to be perfect. Everything's got to be perfect. So when you look at this, you got the practical side, always trying to think about the customer. When I tie that back together, when we started up, and I guess now four businesses, we think we know quite a bit about the customer. We're always learning, by the way. But again, it's still based off the science. So what I wanted to ask you, Jarrett, was if someone just grew up in wheat and canola country mm -hmm. and having this perspective and experience that you have now, what do you think are the biggest things folks are maybe missing not having the benefit of this perspective that you brought? First of all, being open-minded. You learn what you learned in school, which is great, but the world is large and you can make it small really quickly. My personal friends on a daily basis that I talk to to consult with are from people from all over the world. I look at certain countries are very good at certain things. So I think we can't just think about, well, in school, my professor said this was the case. That, By the way, that professor is very accurate. But what you need to do is you need to get multiple points of people from different areas that bring different skills and then collect multiple pieces of information and then make your decision based off what you want to do. I think my professors who are still some of my mentors, I look at my other mentors and when I put them in a room and I've put my professors in a room and my mentors in a room and they've agreed to disagree. And I just absolutely <laughs> love that. I love it when they disagree because they're all right, but they're all coming at a different angle. So I'm almost a mental facilitator. So the message that I bring to the field is global. It truly is global. My friends are from Australia. They're from New Zealand. They're from the UK. They're from Europe. They're from India. They're from South Africa, Central America, South America. And then you kind of smash it all together into sort of the message that I have. And you talk about going on this journey really from academia to, to getting into the field, to applying it in an entrepreneurial sense and always having that entrepreneurial fervor. 
at what point did you realize, hey, you know, if we're building a machine here, maybe I could build a, a, a machine of commerce and I could probably do it just as good or better with everything I learned. Where, where, where did you realize you're going to be a business person when you grew up? I think what I realized is when I was working for Exxon at the time, which was ESN, the control release fertilizer, it, it, it's been merged. It was sold many times. When I looked at that, what I realized is at the time it was the largest company in the world, but we were in a very special little group and we were allowed to spread our wings and be very creative and evolve a technology. At that time, polymer-coated fertilizer didn't really exist. That shows you my age. I mean, it, it was so on the edge. And so we were kind of selling stuff. We're trying to develop stuff. How do we release stuff? It was a constant team effort to create it. And I, I think at that point, I didn't realize how entrepreneurial I was until we got to be in a very good business. And then we got put into the big mothership and which then became very business structured, very corporate, which is fine. And then I realized very clearly, as did virtually my entire group that I work with, that the new organization was not right for us. So this is where I really realized that culture was critical. And for me, culture, three ways of culture, shareholder-driven culture, employee-driven culture, customer-driven culture. And I realized at that point, being entrepreneurial, I wanted to be employee-driven. And to this day, everything we do is employee-driven culture. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. And I'm sure it's just going to grow. Isn't it exciting as you get older that you're just going to be playing a bigger and bigger game, Jared? I don't know if it's going to be bigger and bigger. I'm still having a lot of fun. I mean, again, yeah. the, the, the one, I think, yeah, I mean, it is getting bigger. I just don't want to get the, that old kind of set in his way guy that's got no hair. That's his opinion is set in stone. I think that's the cool thing is having a family, having my middle daughter doing her graduate work, being exposed to stuff, being exposed to young people. You got to again, you got to, I think you got to keep active in what you're doing. And again, in, in all this stuff, I just, I do what I do because I love doing it. It sounds funny. I don't do it for the money. It, the money just kind of comes at the end, but you do it because you're passionate. And I think about what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about agriculture, passionate about working with people that love working in agriculture. And those are critical things. And then just the passion about the science. The more I learn about plant physiology, you can almost take that word plant out and put in the word human physiology. And it's mm -hmm. very, it's not transferable, but metaphorically, it's very transferable, which means there's so many ways to grow a crop. And I think figure out which way is right for you and then grow the crop the way. No different than the business. What's the right business for you? Shareholder driven, customer driven, employee driven. Hmm. Well, I want to talk more about that, but I, I love that you were talking about ESN and you were there at the beginning. And can you tell me a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of that evolution of the product? And my question is, is this the answer? I know lots of people in the regulatory space are looking at it when they talk about reducing emissions at a federal level. And you're very in tune with not only regulatory world, but the consumer world and the commercial world. So you're able to mm -hmm. bridge the gap between these worlds. But is slow release nitrogen the answer to our environmental woe, so to speak? Or are we creating another problem by introducing something that inhibits a nitrogen cycle that's got the regenerative people turning over in their cover crops with horror? It's a really good question. When, when we <laughs> worked on control release fertilizer, at that point, we focused on fresh produce. We focused on the golf course industry and, and containerized nursery production. A couple of reasons. The golf course industry was already in it. You have There you have a situation where you're watering every day. 
You have a soilless media, as, as most people don't know, USGA uh, green space mix is uh, over 90% sand, silica sand. There's a, there's, and there's only a small amount of organic matter for a whole bunch of agronomic reasons. So now you're watering a half an inch a day or a tenth of an inch a day. Your root system is maybe three inches. So nutrient stewardship is critical in that environment. In the fresh produce industry, we were pioneering the control release fertilizer industry and it, it was the bleeding edge for us. It wasn't the leading edge. We were at the bleeding edge. We were before the time. And there you had very intensive managed crops uh, that their fertilizer bill was such a small portion of their entire management bill that if you needed to put on 100 pounds of nitrogen, just put 120 because that extra 20 pounds was so irrelevant. So there, we also had a lot of furrow irrigation at the time where you were actually watering the furrows rather than drip irrigation. So it was very hard to get into that. Now with drip irrigation, drip irrigation is basically slow release fertilizer, right? You can, you can mimic as you go. In our case here, and I still, and again, agronomists will disagree with me on this. Our case here is in terms of uh, nitrogen loss in our small grain cereals and oil seeds and row crops, it's not due to leaching. Yes, is there going to be cases? Absolutely. But to me, it's due to, first of all, managing your carbon to nitrogen ratio. So to be sure we don't get tie up and it's mobilization. It's also due to denitrification and volatilization. That's our key pieces. For myself, I think these nitrogen stabilized products, these slow release fertilizers are a valuable tool to use. I think, however, in saying that, I would prefer that people understand the way a plant works to understand if they actually need it or not. Do people know the nutrient demand curves of that crop at certain times? And does that slow release fertilizer, how does that work within that demand curves? Because it still comes down to the product is what? The question is, why are we even looking at this? Ultimately, we wanna spoon feed the crop. Do these products spoon feed the crop? That's what you have to decide for yourself. And you have to figure out how they work. What's the variables that, that trigger the release rate, trigger them to be broken down? And then what exactly do they do? Does it fit your plan? I mean, for my for myself, I, I look at different things, but they work. It's really more about supply to the crop rather than loss, in my opinion. Now, of course, waterlogged conditions, yeah, okay, that's totally different. I understand the waterlogging conditions, the volatilization conditions, but at the same time, Western Canadian farms, I've traveled around the world. When I go around the world, you know what people want me to talk about? Seed placed and side banded fertilizer and direct seeding because Canada, maybe not today, they probably are, but when I've used last decade, when I've traveled on the road, that's what people want to talk about. They always say Canadians know how to place fertilizer really efficiently. So we're pretty damn good at it compared to other countries. Well, you have a super high level of understanding of all these things. You're a very technical guy every time you talk. It's very impressive uh, what you share. And, and not only that, but you work with some of the best in the world, like Professor Chakmak. Yeah, yep. Ishmael Chakmak, yeah. Ishmael Chakmak. And you take them on tour, kind of like a super band, and you share that information. But what is your philosophy? How do you simplify it down? If I'm a producer sitting at the kitchen table, and I want to use your system because I, I got to know and like you, trust, trust you, Jared. What do you do? How do you get all this information down and something that we can use throughout the year to be successful with our goals of hitting yields? Yeah. I think that those are hard. By the way, that's really hard. I always, our, our tagline is, is always making the complex simple. The backstage where, where my brain's at, where a lot of our team's at is, is it's very complex. And we unfortunately work every day and we're always trying to get there to take this complex and simplify it into a message that makes sense for the, 
whether it be the retailer or the producer, but without overpromising. So I think the big thing that that we like to do is really to understand what is the choke points that that re- grower has now or the retailer has now. So really understand a lot of people talk about the logistics component, right? A lot of people say logistics chumps agronomy and this and that. But to me, the logistics can is, is a big word. It's a big umbrella word. To me, the logistics is what is your logistical issue? Is it the fact that you're using liquid fertilizer, not granular, using granular, not liquid? We look at, we're now up to 30% of the people soil sample every year, a field every year. It used to be 20, it used to be 19% just three years ago in the research. And so we're still looking at the single largest variable investment that a grower has. Only one of every three fields is soil sampled. And to me, we have to, it's hard to make a simple plan when you don't have data. And so I think what we find with our, during the heat of the battle, you make a recommendation, but in the off season, you have to spend time on the complex backside. And in our world, right or wrong, we try to get people to the state where they're comfortable with using a nutrient or a management system. I mean, to me, that is is the big piece. Is it's got to be? I come. I kind of sometimes use it as. Do you, do you want to work with a half full glass or a half empty glass? And, and what I mean by that is when you go out to do a trial on a product or on a management technique, this, the starter fertilizer work, that's not the mindset we do. And because that is actually, in my opinion, a half empty glass. If you take starter fertilizer, let's take liquid fertilizer, starter fertilizer, we're going to put a little bit of zinc in it, right? We're going to go out there. We're going to do a trial to see if it works. Well, that's actually not right. The trial should be, we spent the off season knowing that starter fertilizers work. We have a soil sample. We know our phosphorus is low. We know our zinc is low. So we've done our homework. So now we need to do a trial to show that starter fertilizer or zinc works. The only way you can set up a trial to show that it works is to do your homework ahead of time. And so the, the, the fortunate time that I have spending with growers, which unfortunately is not as much as I used to, I need to be sure that that retailer or that grower is half full glass. Has to be half full glass. When somebody says, I'll try your product out, I'll see if it works against what I'm doing today. And I actually go, you want some? Don't even waste your time. <laughs> Don't even waste your time. I, I can predict the results because all of a sudden, if it works, they're going to go, wow, I was surprised that it worked. Yeah, because you're half empty glass. I would prefer <laughs> that you would say, I've been doing soil samples and tissue samples, and I'm constantly seeing a deficiency in boron and potassium. I'm not exactly sure what to do. This is what I'm thinking. We're going to say, okay, let's put a boron and potassium program together for you. And we're going to do it this way. And guess what happens? The probability of success goes through the roof. I can graph this out. Is it not incumbent upon industry who's more or less gone, like you walk into a certain building in the trade show? Mm-hmm. If you could add everybody's cumulative gains together, <laughs> yes. if you grow 300 bushels of wheat, right. farmers know that's physically impossible. That's Have cool. we shot ourselves in our foot with all of this approach without, because it's really something nuanced here that you're talking about that I think it's important for farmers to understand if they want to get the benefits from this stuff. It's like your own health. Are you getting the macros right? Are you working out? Are you sleeping? Are you drinking lots of water and stuff like that? De-stressing your life, declaring your life then you can start taking some supplements. Are you even going to see a difference then? You might not be able to leap over tall buildings immediately, but you might have a better quality of life a little bit longer, have more output, have more clarity of thought, all that stuff. You nailed it. I find 
the more I think about my personal health as I'm aging every day, like everybody does, it really resonates when you talk to human nutritionists and you think about, do you jam a, a new food group into your body without doing research? Well, it's probably not a good idea, right? So are we doing the same thing for the plant? Now we think about for a human, if you're a, a middle-aged person that basically sits at their table eight hours a day and doesn't exercise, probably your food consumption doesn't matter because you're going to be overweight and you're going to die early, right? But you're going to be happy <laughs> die, right? You're going to have lots of calories, you're going to be happy dying. But there's two ways to look at it. There's that high-performance athlete that's going for, metaphorically, the Olympics or going to the NHL. You ask them about diet, that's a no-brainer. It's all about diet. Now, that's only that 1% of the population. What I look at is Somebody like myself, maybe somebody like yourself, Dan, that we want to stay young, we want to stay active, and we've learned the hard way that by not exercising, not eating the proper food, we don't feel very good. So all of a sudden you start exercising, you start eating the right food groups, and we start feeling great. And I think that's where we need to start with our crops is how do we just get our crops to be healthy? And then maybe one day the odd one will, one of our fields will make the Olympics. And when they make the Olympics, now we're tweaking things. But I Mm. think the people that are just saying, I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. First of all, that's great. I mean, I'm pretty sure it works for them and I'm pretty sure that they're, they're successful. We can help them out in a different way. It's the ones that are saying, I want to be healthier. I want to see what I can do. Maybe I want to reduce my nitrogen emissions that we may have to here in 2030 or whatever the number is. Do we do that strictly on nitrogen management? No, no. Like seriously, if anybody (laughs) thinks that you just manage nitrogen based off nitrogen, then it's like saying, let's eat popcorn for 365 days a year, just popcorn, nothing else. (laughs) And I bet you if we eat more popcorn and we're less popcorn, we're gonna feel different. But if we don't eat everything else, this is so monoculture. It is two-dimensional science. And this is where we have to get practical people into regulatory positions, legislative positions to understand that the best way to harness the power of nitrogen, the Canadians are there, place it properly, place it in the right time, place it in the right form. And then that one thing, place it in the right ratio, base us off what is gonna drive productivity. We know, the experts know, nitrogen to sulfur ratio is critical. We also know too much nitrogen will trigger a copper deficiency. Holy crap. So what happens if we put on more copper with that nitrogen? I'm pretty sure we're going to get more yield. Maybe our emissions will go down. We only have to think two-dimensionally, heck, three-dimensionally. Most people think one-dimensional. Not most people. I shouldn't say that back. Sometimes this legislation is stated one-dimensionally. And as a result, we react, we react, we react. And at the end of the day, it doesn't help the grower. It doesn't help the grower at all. So if we liken you to a specialist in nutrition where the general doctor can take your blood test, but they're not necessarily looking through a microscope into a blood like naturopath saying, well, they missed this and they missed that. And this actually has to do with this. And if we can adjust this and then I can take a look at it in three months, we'll know what to adjust next. Where are most producers when, when they come to see you as a specialist, so to speak, where you start to fit in, right? Are they tracking everything? It is quite amazing that you have you have people of the exact same landmass size that look at things quite differently. I mean, I'm very for I don't really have a lot of direct customers, unfortunately. And but some of the guys 
I guess maybe if nobody else picks up their phone internally, they let me talk to a customer every now and then. But <laughs> oh, Jarrett's on the phone again. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Why didn't somebody else pick up the phone before? So, what I love to do, and I was just working with, I'm working with a behind the scenes, working with these couple really large farmers, and they are all into managing nutrient health, plant health. And people can say, oh, their budgets must be crazy. First of all, their, their, their nutrient budget is actually very similar to the guy down the street that puts on 170 pounds of nitrogen. They're just reallocating the resources in different ways. I think they're realizing they have to evolve. I mean, some of this legislation is very frustrating, but we have to deal with the legislation. So do you just deal with the legislation or do you take a step back and say, here's an opportunity. Here's an opportunity to grow a better crop with maybe the same financial investment, but reallocate those resources and learn from other countries. We know how to place fertilizer properly. I truly believe that our plant nutrition learnings at school are modest compared to some other countries. And I think that's the area of opportunity. What about biological? It's a tool. I mean, biological is a tool. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I, I did my graduate work on Jumpstart, so I'm very, it was called PB50 back then for your listeners. They're going to say, oh yeah, I remember PB50. <laughs> Most of your listeners are too young. They're going to go, what the hell is PB50? That's all right. They won't even know what provide is, but I knew it when they actually spelt the organism penicillin bly, it was actually spelt differently than it is now. So wow. I did a lot of the original work on the radioactive tracing and how uh, penicillin bly worked in the plant. So have that background biologicals are a tool. It's a version of a potentially a fertilizer plant. Again, my cons my piece that I love about biologicals, again, I'm not talking biopesticides, I'm talking biofertilizer side, yeah, yeah. is what is that biological organism or organisms, consortium organisms, whatever you're using, what is it actually producing that's helping the plant? Now, I'm not talking rhizobium here. That's totally different. I'm not talking nitrogen fixing ones. I'm talking about organisms that are being introduced that produce compounds we refer to as metabolites. And those metabolites now help the plant directly or indirectly. In that case there, I like to focus on what the organism is producing, very much like a production plant. So you have a big ass stainless steel plant with a whole bunch of pressure and temperature, it makes urea. I look at biologicals as the metaphorically, the same as that big ass multi-billion dollar fertilizer plant that is producing all these metabolites. So, and why I like to do that is people say, well, if I'm introducing a foreign organism to a soil, does it even live? Now we've, of course, we're half empty glass. We've completely missed the purpose. So my whole thing is, let's not worry if the organism is alive or dead. Let's not even introduce it. Because by the way, if you introduce a foreign organism into a soil, it dies. <laughs> It's talk, war down there. It, it is war <laughs> down there. And if everybody, then that thing is bacillus-based and you introduce actinomycetes and there's no other actinomycetes in that soil, those bacillus are going to say, screw you, man, this is our home <laughs> turf. You're dead. And now yeah. you don't know if it's going to work. Now if that actinomycete, I'm just picking these random organisms out of the blue, produces five metabolites or 50 metabolites at a critical plant, why don't we get it to produce it in that fermentation plant, concentrate it down, isolate it, and then introduce that into the plant because it is about growing the plant and of course mm. soil health versus plant health it's a it's a cyclical thing soil health is driven by plant health that's the way it's always been and i think you just can't introduce organisms into soil and expect them to live because they have to live off something they have to be native 
I'm pretty sure on your brother's farm, he's got different fields that have different soil microflora in it. So which one do you introduce? Well, we, we're just scratching the surface of understanding that as far as these soil health tests go and all that good stuff, yeah. right? Because understanding what you have before you put soldiers on the battlefield is probably one. one so you're talking more biostimulants than just throwing biologicals right at the soil. Is that fair? The great thing is outside of Canada, the U.S. and Europe and India, uh, Australia, uh, different parts of Africa have, have a very similar definition of biostimulants right now. And in all those countries, a biological is one of the divisions of biostimulants. There's four families of biostimulants. One of them is biological. So outside of nitrogen-fixing organisms that we've already talked to, maybe like a mycorrhizae type of product that truly lives in a, in a symbiotic relationship, when you're using a biological and you're not folk, the, and you're looking at, you truly understand how it works. And if it's the metabolites, then to me, that's a biostimulant. Mm-hmm. And in a biostimulant, it's about driving root rhizosphere. It's about driving the health of that root system. A healthy root system releases different compounds into that rhizosphere, which then generally beneficial organisms come in. When that plant is under stress, it releases different compounds in that rhizosphere, which now pathogenic organisms actually thrive on that. So an unhealthy plant actually attracts pathogens. And then of course you have this double negative and you have this negative cascading effect happening in that rhizosphere. The rhizosphere is the most, in all my travels in North America, nobody focuses on the rhizosphere, but in in a lot of other countries, that's the most important thing because that's the doorway between the soil and the plant. That's the excitement. That's where the magic happens. That's where that plant acquires water and acquires nutrients and does a whole bunch of things to help acquire nutrients and also releases a whole bunch of beneficial compounds that the soil microorganisms say, thank you, I love you, I'm going to proliferate. And when I proliferate, I'm going to give you more food. And then you actually have this synergistic relationship of microorganisms and their plant in the rhizosphere. If you have an unhealthy plant, you actually have the reverse. You have this actually very negative environment in that rhizosphere. So I like biologicals. I I like to know where they fit. I really look at them as stimulating plant health. As and again, it's not my. It was my unofficial definition before, and it seems like the entire world has defined it much more accurately and and succinctly than I have. You talk about perspective. You talk about going around the world. I know you attend these biological conventions. Who knows what you're drinking when you go there? But who are the folks that we should be looking to for the most success? Who are we should be learning from here? Sometimes. You have to have a group that is not basing their entire P&L off a product. Yes. Because if they have a product, a organism, a biological, a biostimulant to sell, and that is 90% of their revenue, then sometimes they fit a square peg into a round hole. I've seen it firsthand. I, all these are tools, but they're part of a very complicated piece. So I kind of think you need to have people that have a neutral perspective that want to provide the right product to the customer that has a portfolio that they don't have to skew their ethics. They can right. still make money, but they don't skew their ethics. They try to do the right <laughs> they try to do the right thing. I mean, Dan, you're saying it. There is so many startup companies, companies that have been around that have one product that at the trade show that have a 27% yield increase, right? 40 bushel yield increase in corn. And nobody believes it, but unfortunately, we all talk about it. Again, it's a company with isolation in one product. Now, the only hmm. company that I shouldn't take that back, I mean, there's there's seed companies that sell seeds. So, I mean, but they have varieties. I mean, the 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 one company that was a magical at selling one product was Monsanto with Roundup, which of course was 
and still is, in my opinion, the best herbicide ever produced. Mm. But I mean, outside of that, you look at the bigger crop protection companies, don't they have a suite of products? Yeah. Whether it's be herbicides, grassies, broadleaf, fungicides, insecticides, seed treatments, because they understand it's much more complex than a single silver bullet, which one comes around per generation. Well, we understand it's a system and it all needs to work together. To what degree, if at all, do we need to reduce our, our chemical subsistence here to get to a more biological side? Or do we do we need to? Do we want to? In, in our primary market here, I, I feel that our pesticide loading is negligible. And I say that for a couple of reasons, because number one, we have, we have the lowest production cost producer cereals in the world. We have people that are very cost conscious because of the, the, the crop that they're growing. Nobody puts on more than they need to. They put on the right amount. And as a general rule, the only guaranteed pesticide that you're putting on the crop is a herbicide. And if you don't put on a herbicide, you're kind of in a little bit of trouble or a lot of trouble. <laughs> we still have people may or may not put on insecticide, may or may not put on a fungicide. I, I think our pesticide loading, I don't have the stats. So, I mean, one of your crop protection uh, gurus can correct me here is probably some of the most efficient use of our crop protection dollar anywhere in the world. Yeah. So you make a great point. I've worked with biopesticides and they never get off our research farm because under a greenhouse condition or under a fresh produce conditions, which is usually my friends tell me where I get it from, they're putting on seven, eight, nine, ten 10 passes of a crop protection product. And generally it's not a herbicide, it's generally some type of fungicide. You're trying to break that cycle of that fungi to be sure you don't get resistance. And they sort of work in fresh produce, but when you have one crack a year, there's the, I'm still trying to find it. There's there, I guess there's one or two out there, but most of them just don't have the strength of our traditional chemistry. But does our, our use of chemical constituents and our fertility hold back the introduction and, and the growth of, of biological pro Because it seems like it's a lot of like either or. Like you can't really use both because synthetic fertility is sort of destroying the biome and unbalancing things. And then you try and introduce biology, just throwing a lot of shit at the wall that's not bound to work together. Is How do you see that? Can all this biological tools for fertility work with our conventional systems? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, the one thing that I, I do get quite upset about is when non-agriculture people say that farmers are hurting the environment or, and that may not be their words. These are my, I mean, I sit there True. and I think about the single most important thing that a grower has is the land that that tractor goes across, the crop is grown and the, that is their asset. And the last time I checked, a farmer is not going to give away the asset. They're going to respect that asset. They're going to get the best return of that asset they possibly can. Do we all make mistakes? Absolutely. When you put on a fertilizer, you put on urea. That is urea. That is synthetically made. As soon as that urease enzyme breaks it down, it's now ammoniacal nitrogen. And that doesn't matter if it's synthetically made or made by an organism. It's ammoniacal nitrogen. So... My piece is synthetic fertilizer, maybe at that point of application, maybe in the, you know, in the case of ammonia, let's be honest, case of ammonia, high pH goes in there. Does it, does it impact that soil microflora around it? Yes. But then it becomes ammonium hydroxide, right? And of course it doesn't become ammonium hydroxide, it's volatilized to the atmosphere. But once it's ammonium hydroxide, it's ammonium. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where it comes from. So whether you have a regenerative or whether you want to go organic or whether you want to go synthetic, that's your choice. So once you have that salt, 
which is basically fertilizer. And it doesn't matter if it's organic or not. It is salt. That is the definition of fertilizer, salt. Like people hate when I say that, salt, right? You put fertilizer <laughs> in the ground. You put salt in the ground. But what does the plant take up? Does it take up fertilizer? Or take up nutrition? It takes up nutrition. And that's the mental mindset we have to accept. We put fertilizer in the ground, whatever way you want to do it. And then we take up nutrition. How that plant takes up nutrition is about plant health, which is, again, where biologicals come in. It's where balanced nutrition comes in. It's where the root rises here comes in. I truly believe, and we've seen it, that it all works together. We can go one way, but to drive productivity, we start with the base. We respect the base. We place the base. We show which ones can be harmful to the plant, so we keep them a little bit away. We think about mobility of those nutrients in the soil, mobility of nutrients in the plant. And once that fertilizer salt is now converted into a molecule, it's no longer synthetic. It's basically, whether right. it's organic or not, once you're on the periodic table, it's a periodic table. And then this is where the biologicals, the biostimulants, the balanced nutrition then harnesses the power of each element. That's very interesting how you position that. So then if, if all fertilizer is essentially salt, why is everybody selling low salt fertilizer? And it's very sexy sounding. Well, that's a very interesting question because low salt fertilizer actually is valid, by the way. But that basically salt is based off the electrical conductivity of a, of, of a, a salt index is based off putting, putting a water soluble nutrient in water, dissolving it, putting an electrical conductivity probe in there and you get a reading. Now, some is saltier than others. There's no question about that. And when they are salty and others, we have to think about, let's move that away. When the electrical conductivity, let's move that away from that young seedling to be sure that it actually, you don't get any injury. Well, that is driven by solubility as one piece. We got to think about that. The other one is also driven by number of cations you have present. I mean, I can take an insoluble zinc and I can guarantee, you know, you know what the salt XN is going to be? Very low. Why? Because it's not soluble. And if it's not soluble, I am 100% sure the plant cannot take it up. Because as, <laughs> as some cynical speakers have said in the past, and now I'm getting cynical because I'm getting old as well, plants <laughs> suck, they don't chew. It has to be in solution. Yeah. Um, now, do, do we at ATP and other companies sell a low salt index starter fertilizer? Absolutely. Why do we sell a low salt index starter fertilizer? So that it can go be seed placed. So the salt index is valid, mm -hmm. but it's not as clear as your stuff is salty, so it's bad. It's a matter of what are you comparing bad to? Muriate of potash, potassium chloride, that's salty, right? So right. it's very soluble. Got a lot of potassium, 62% potassium, and of course it's going to be salty. Something with yeah. a high ammoniacal portion is going to be salty. I can take zinc sulfate. I can take a zinc oxysulfate, which is 60% soluble. I can take a 20% soluble zinc oxysulfate and I can take zinc oxide and I can tell you the salt index is directly proportionate to solubility. So I respect salt, but we have to also balance it with science. Hmm. Otherwise we get caught point. into these conversations of company B's product is salty and company C's generally has nothing to do with our product. <laughs> Which one do you think is better? Our question is, what are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. What are you trying to accomplish with that product? Oh, I need to seed place my starter phosphorus. Fantastic. So are you putting potash solution in it? Yes. Okay, so you're putting potash solution as a starter. 
why do you care about the salt index of the phosphate product? Because the potash is way saltier. Yeah. So again, it is about, a lit, and it's about this diffusion. It's about this gradient in terms of osmosis as it moves into there for the, the salt index from high to low concentration. So you don't want to dry that plant up. I mean, sodium chloride, hopefully nobody putting it on table salt onto their crop, but I mean, that's, that's a place <laughs> to possibly do it. The plant needs sodium, just not a lot of it. Yeah. Very low, very, very low amount. Of Cows it, need salt. We need salt. I mean, yeah. it can be fatal if we're not getting enough salt. I always find the food tastes better once you got the right balance of salt. And as, and as Dan, I mean, when you have the right amount of salt in food, then you taste the flavor of the paprika or the garlic or the cinnamon. But if you don't have enough salt in your food to balance the salt level in your body, you don't taste the paprika. You don't taste the cumin. You don't taste the garlic. Oh, a little bit of chef action going on here too. I don't know what the hell I was talking about that for. I don't know why I was talking about that, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of a foodie. Nothing drives you crazy. You see 19 ingredients go into this hamburger and you're like, this right. is going to be amazing. And you don't taste anything. Then you put a little bit of salt on it and all these flavors go crazy. Interesting. Well, and you also need uh, salts and potassium and all that good stuff. Electrolytes if you're fasting. Yeah. So you, you take something like two low salt index products that I know out there, and there's probably more plant available. Plant available, ones that are salt index is monopotassium phosphate, MKP. You may, your brother has used MKP in the past. The salt index is 8.4 relative to a lot of stuff that's 30 or 40, 60 potash is maybe 100, 120. Super low salt index. The biggest user of MKP in the world is Gatorade and Powerade. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's used for electrolytes. It's the same, mm. comes out of the same plant, slightly refined differently, monopotassium phosphate. The other one that's really a, a very good low salt index is potassium carbonate. Again, just the way that molecule is built, super, super low salt indexes. As a soil application, you're not going to get an agronomic difference for some other one. But as an in-season application, either foliarly or in the case of greenhouses where you run it through the drip, where you're working on very sensitive crops, super, super, super important. But again, we're growing corn, we're growing wheat, we're not growing succulent peppers or tomatoes right. or head lettuce or something different like that. Different ball game, totally different ball game. Yeah. But you make a good point about how we are efficient in our, in our production, given the nature of the production on broad acres with low margin crops relative to other places where it pays to pour on the coal. It's not as much a consideration. Now, you said a lot of wonderful things and it makes a lot of sense, but we realize it's, it's not that simple and there's a lot more to this. If I'm a producer who's going down the field, the crop's just emerging 20 miles an hour, I got the 175 foot boom on the AgriFact. I just turned off Metallica's new album to listen to Growing the Future podcast and Jared Chambers is blowing my mind. What advice would you give to the producer with a crop just coming up? How do you manage priorities? Of course, you got to kill the weeds, you got to watch out for the disease, but... How do we start to get on the ATP program as the crop's coming up? What are we looking for? What are we thinking about? What's our priority? What's our triumvirate of, of things we want to do? So a couple of things, of course, you got to be sure you have done your soil sample ahead of time. Uh, and let's understand what you put in the soil, what you want to accomplish with your crop. When that crop's coming out of the ground, again, we're I obsess with tissue testing. It's one of the things that we're working hard now in real-time tissue testing because tissue testing can be very frustrating because your turnaround time may be three to five days. That's longer than you want. Tissue testing is also concentration of a nutrient in a plant. So if you have a small plant versus a large plant, the concentrations uh, may look very similar, but the amount of biomass is different. So when you come out of the ground, I think the key thing you want to say is, did anything I do at planting affect my stand? 
And if my stand's looking good, now what's the vigor looking like in my crop? Grab that shovel, dig up the roots. What do the roots look like? Are the roots looking great? If they're looking great, then grab that tissue sample and grab the soil sample as well. I'm, I'm always obsessed with grabbing a soil and a tissue sample and then see, is anything out of balance? Now, here's the crazy thing, uh, Dan. If something's out of balance, you can get a chance to fix it. But if something is in balance and you think you have a beautiful stand, then in other countries that have a longer growing season than us, put that in perspective, what do they do? They pour the coal to it, right? They say, this crop is looking great. I got a, I, I got good moisture. Future looks good in terms of weather. I got my fertility there, but I fertilized for a 70 bushel crop. And this stand, it could go 70, could go 60, could go 90. But based on my fertility, it's not going to go 90. So do I rather than knee jerk and fix potassium deficiency or boron deficiency, or do I say, I'm looking good. Let's keep this baby going. Hmm. And let's actually supplement. I mean, it, it, it is, Daniel, I don't think you've heard of my talks. I've always said, wouldn't it be great if we had conversations? My crop is looking so good. What should I invest in it? <laughs> That's right? better than, oh, shit, what's happening now? We're going backwards yeah. here. But in this portion of the field, this portion of the field is not right. So let's focus on that, which, by the way, that that's real. I, I support that 100%. But my thing is we got a great looking crop. Let's pound it out. I mean, we take the UK, for example. Don't hold me to these numbers. I look at winter cereals in the UK. A lot of the average grower will go, I don't do anything with my winter wheat in the fall time. I just let it go all yellow, look like hell. But come February, I'm going to start top dressing it. And you're like, well, is, is should should that crop be yellow? No, no, but I don't start managing it until February. Whereas the great growers are going, that yellowing is because of manganese deficiency or generally it's manganese over there. So it's manganese deficiency. I'm going to address that manganese and I'm going to have that root system and that shoot the root ratio just magical. So come springtime, when it comes out of vernalization, boom, it's off. What's the difference? One's an eight to nine ton a hectare grower. The other one's a 13 to 15 ton a hectare grower. These are the differences. So when, when, I'm, when I'm over in Europe and I look at these guys that are targeting 15 tons a hectare, they're not waiting months to start to manage a crop. They're saying it's out of the ground. I know my soil's deficient. It's always deficient. I got to jump on it, even though we're just getting ready for winter. So can we translate that here? Yes. Do we do the same management tools over there? No, but what we do is we, we keep our mind open is how do we translate what other people are doing, and does it work in our system to push the crop? Well, when I think about fertility, I think about my own health, and, I, and I, lately I've been coaching myself, hey, Dan, if you just do one thing, if you just track what you put in your mouth and look at it daily, your awareness level, your situational awareness is going to rise. You're going to come to an understanding of the nutrients that are going into your body. Are, are you eating more than you should? I mean, the app that I have will project how fat I'm going to be in five weeks if I keep eating like that. <laughs> That's a wake up call, right? Yes. So when I think about these things, I wonder for producers, if only a third of them are tracking even something like soil tests, which is pretty common knowledge, tissue tests might be another bridge that might be only 10% or 5% are doing that. Yep. So if you just do one thing, maybe tracking all that over the years, will start to give you some situa situational awareness upon which you can start to act with somebody like you, because you're, you're a high quality problems guy, right? Your companies provide solutions to people with high quality problems? At the end of the day, if you're going to do one tissue sample, don't do it. I'm sorry. Don't do it. 
I read articles from people that I respect. Sometimes I don't respect them after I've read these articles. They say, do a tissue sample and it's a report card for next year's crop. These are not the exact words, but these are pretty much the words. So you're like, so you're doing a tissue sample on a canola crop and you see that you're deficient in a nutrient, but now you're not going to put canola on that field for three more years. Let's just pick boron. And my next crop is going to be canola, uh, wheat. And I know that wheat's not super responsive to boron. So if you don't act on that tissue sample, why'd you do it in the first place? And, and tissue samples should be real time. It should be what you deal with. So our whole thing is, if you're going to get into it, target a portion of your farm, maybe target a field, tissue sample it early on the season, just prior to herbicide timing, so you can see how your starter fertilizer worked. Is there anything out of balance? Then come back in just prior to reproductive, and there you sample the old leaves and the new leaves. So now you can see what nutrients, primarily nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, those are going to be deficient in the oldest leaves. If they're already deficient in the oldest leaves prior to flowering, you have lost a ton of yield. But what do we all say? (laughs) Using wheat as an example. Sample the youngest part of the leaf, sample the flag leaf. Well, that actually doesn't actually tell you the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium status of the entire plant. It tells you of that leaf. Mm. So, and then sample it again, flowering. Three samples, grab a soil sample each time as well. People are going to say, that's crazy. Well, if you're going to do it, do it properly or don't do it at all. That's kind of like, you can't do anything half-hearted. So is, is that for every field? Probably not. Can't, do we need to get there? Yeah. And there's going to be tools to get. We're working on real-time tissue analysis, real-time soil analysis. Well, tell me about that. I almost forgot. You guys are working with this Nutriscan. Folks are wanting, it's like a Star Trek wand. It tells you everything a soil test. It's a mobile lab. How is it going? Some people say you're bringing the lab to the field. The soil calibration was actually always, we're always got the machine learning happening. We're really comfortable with the soil results. Can they get better? Absolutely. What's our biggest challenge with the soil results right now is, myself included, I'm used to certain seeing certain numbers for a nutrient. The NutriScan gives you a different number. And what we've had to do is we've had to correlate that number to what you're normally used to seeing. Mm-hmm. That is not really a science-based approach. That is a human-based approach that we've had to do. So we have to do more calibration, more correlations on that just to get people more comfortable with it. What we've seen is people that take one soil sample with the scanner and they go, it doesn't work. You're like, yeah, no kidding. You did one sample. So again, you're half empty glass. You actually did this. You actually put that scanner out there because your boss told you had to, and I don't want this thing to work. So guess what? It doesn't work. (laughs) Anybody who's done 50 to 100 soil samples are all testimonial customers. Yeah. Because now they realize this is the numbers we're getting with the scanner. These are the numbers we're getting in our lab. They make their own mental correlation. Even though we have ours, they have theirs. And all of a sudden they see the success. But what we've been working on here for the last number of months, and we're going to release a beta version here uh, for full full release in 2024, is real-time tissue testing. Really? So we're actually targeting canola, then we're going to target corn, we're targeting wheat, and then soybeans, and we're actually growing the plants, and we're scanning all the leaves under four different nutrient regimes, 55, 70, 85, 100, and 115% of optimum the target nutrition. We scan those leaf tissue assemblies, running through different labs, and then have the machine learning do it. So that to me, the goal here is to basically have your NutriScan, walk out to the field, grab your soil, scan your soil, 
at that point, we're probably once you're once you're swarmed up, it's about a minute. We'll say two minutes. As you're doing that, you grab your leaves, you scan your leaves. Eight to fifteen minutes later, you now have the nutritional status of your old leaves, your young leaves, and in your soil. And now we can say, okay, this is cool. We can do something with this, right? What I really like and envy about you is that you are more excited about what you're doing. I mean, you developed a level of mastery here in the industry that most people would be challenged to achieve. I think both agronomically and entrepreneurially, Jared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're just you're just like a little kid when you're talking. And I granted, we should see this on every farm yeah, yeah, in Western yeah. Canada in 10, 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I should have one. We want you to have ours, but if you have somebody else's, that's good too. No, that's actually not good. It's a good plan. I, B. What are you but, saying, Jared? Let, you're a capitalist. Let's be real. Every now and then. But I mean, at the end of the day, like I think about, it was a number of years ago, it was probably almost 20 years ago. I was at a Christmas function. We were the only people there in agriculture. Everybody else was investment people and doctors and dentists and a whole bunch of professionals that I looked up to. And one person said to me, they go, you're in agriculture. That's a really hot industry right now. <laughs> and that was my that was my TSN turning point in life. Because I could have went, option one could have been, no shit, Sherlock. But what I actually said was, you are right. Agriculture is the coolest industry in the world. Because without food, we die. Mm. And that was my turning point. Rather than being cynical and basically telling this doctor that he, that was a really silly comment. I kind of embraced it. And ever since then, I've turned it around and I've embraced it. And my poor neighbors where we live, I mean, they know about my extraction techniques and my new product. They know about the <laughs> nanofiltration. They know about ion exchange resins. They know about catalysts and this and that. And I don't think they have a clue what the hell I'm talking about. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I am pitching. Agriculture is very scientific but it is the practical application of science. And the people that develop stuff, whatever they develop, it is science-based. And we should be damn proud that we got some pretty kick-ass shit that goes on in that. Oh, dear listener, if you're not motivated by and, now. And we need to know. market it. We need to market <laughs> it to the world. We don't need the world to think that we sterilize our soils and we don't care about the land and we put on this and that. We need to be the fact that we're damn good at what we do. In fact, we're freaking great at what we do and we're gonna be better. And without us, nobody's going to feed the world. I love that, man. I, I've been meaning to ask you since you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, but I really want to get there into a little bit more of the the business side of things. When you talk about the three levels of culture, I, I'd love it if you could tell us how you view that internally, stakeholders, shareholders, then you're talking about employees, then you're talking about customers. But but can you tell us about that, but also relate it to the producer? What, how should they be seeing these three levels of culture? in their business. First of all, there's, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever fits. Like I actually say, you think about people that get employed by company one and they're really excited. And then they go, I really hate the company that I work for. <laughs> but, and the thing about it is why do they hate that company that they hired on to nine months ago? And it's because they didn't understand the company's culture. I mean, you got to, you got to know what way you are. I mean, and there's no right or wrong way. I mean, it's, it's whatever fits it. In our case there, employee first. And our approach, whether it's a third of your day or 50% of your day, you're with these people. These are your family, in my opinion. We can all bring different skill sets, but our common goal has to be 
employee first. And if we have a very knowledgeable person that is inspired to be in a culture to have this common goal, which is to help the customer grow a better crop, then the shareholder will be happy in the end. So our our compromise is, or we won't compromise selling a product to make more money because that would be, you know, not our mindset. Our mindset is to try to do our best based off our skill set, our knowledge, to do the right recommendation. Do it in a system where it is employee driven. I mean, so I think about a grower. Some growers are corporations. Some growers are employee driven, and, and there's no right or wrong. But when you meet people and you connect with people, it's usually because the culture that you're actually in subconsciously are very aligned. Well, let's be real. I don't remember a hired man really to speak of when we were growing up like early, early on the farm. Now there's a team of people who are all working in their unique ability and taking shift work and have their standard operating procedures for their job and everything. But to let's be fair, in a lot of cases for producers, they're the employee. They're their own employee. So what you're saying, whether you're an individualist running your own business, you don't have a lot of hired folks. In that case, <laughs> you need to work. are you satisfied with what you're doing? How do you keep employees happy in a challenging environment like a, a farm or an input company? How you keep them happy is, first of all, th- for both parties to spend more time during the interview process to understand how is it, let's be honest, if you're interviewing somebody based off the resume, they're good. That based off the resume, you wanna meet them. To me, interviewing somebody is not about their resume, it's about how they created that resume. Who are they as an individuals? Like, how are they wired? At the same time, I want that employee, potential employee, to do the same thing to the employer. I want them to interview them to say, hey, I've taken the time to come here and be interviewed. I need to understand if this culture matches my beliefs as well. So right. how do we inspire people? When you get the right people together, it just, honestly, it just works together. And in our case here, we have a very employee-driven incentive plan that works like so many companies in that our key, some companies are like, how did the company do? And then the employee gets their little piece of it. Our approach is, how did you do? And that's the majority of your reward. And then how did the company do? Interesting. We do what we preach. We practice what we preach. If we're employee-driven, then employee rewards should be employee-based. And if all the employees do a great job, and even if some of them don't do a great job, the company still does good at the end. So we... It drives me crazy. And someone says, I'm employee driven, but your your incentive is based off the success of the company. Well, actually, that's somebody who doesn't even know what their culture is. I mean, again, that's my cynical nature coming out because when I see, I love it. we've had some people that come into our company and we're like, man, this person, this lady, it's absolutely amazing. And they come in here and it's just like, wow, I just can't drag anything out of them. And it's because <laughs> they're wired for a different culture. They really it's are. Funny. It's funny how often alignment comes up. Alignment of core values, alignments of vision. When we do as you would do, Dan, we also always do the Colby test with our with our staff, your cognitive pieces. And it's really quite fun because we can almost pretty much do somebody's Colby before they do their Colby. And our entire staff says, oh, Dan's going to be these four numbers. And you can always, <laughs> it's quite interesting. So it, it means that everybody's different. But once you get everybody different, if you have the right balance of difference, whether it's gender, 
whether it's age, whether it's their Colby score, they still have to have the same culture. Know who you're talking to, right? Yeah. Know how they're going to respond to any given task and know what's important to them. I love that. Hey, if we got together, we're going to have to wrap this up. You got, we got to get going here. But my last question would be, if we're on this show three years from now and I and, and we're getting together, what has to have happened for you to feel like a success three years from now? That's always a great question because I always ask, see, I, I interview people last and I interview people with weird ass questions and I always ask them that question <laughs> and they all sit there and they and none of them know how to answer it. In, in my case here, I've never been asked that question, Dan, so thank you. So I'm just kind of buying time as trying to get my, in my well, case- Toastmasters trick, just in, repeat in, the question. In, in my case here, I think the common theme is to really be able to have- more real-time tools to make real-time decisions and understand that agriculture is multifaceted, but let's not be scared of it. Let's not be scared of it. Let's actually think about things, not, not in isolation, but in real life, which is really the complexity of life. And I think at the end of the day, three years from now, I don't want government telling us what our nitrogen fertilizer rate should be. That's embarrassing. Exactly. That's absolutely embarrassing. And it's an insult to me and I'm guilty of not being more of an advocate. And I, it's the challenge of the industry. We know our industry best. We need to regulate it. And what I want to see in three years from now is that farmers are making more money per acre, irregardless of the crop prices. And if they're making more money per acre, that means they're investing in, in the economy, they're investing in their operation, they're investing in their farm. And that is, again, stimulating the economy as much as we can. And the thing about it, Adopt tools, but don't adopt them just to adopt them. Ask, why would I even look at that tool? Whatever that tool is, whether it's a piece of hardware or it's a nutrient, and understand it, understand why you want to do it, how it works. And at the end of the day, if you got those two things nailed down, your outcome is going to be really positive. So three years from now, I think we, we got to adopt tools that work well for that individual. Doesn't have to be across the thing, but work well for that individual. And we need to be controlling our destiny. We can't have the government controlling our destiny. Mm, that's a huge vision, my friend. <laughs> and it's not going to happen in three years. It may happen in one or two generations, but... I think there's yeah. a po politician's life here for you at somewhere in this. And wouldn't no, it be something that no. somebody's been successful in a company, running a company, okay, in politics? Maybe that would help. Yeah, I'm going to leave that one alone because I'm going to say something at all that I'm pretty sure most of your audience will agree to, but my loving wife will not agree to. So could affect uh, your future political career. That's right. Know. That's right. <laughs> Keep it clean. Keep it clean. Well, hey, Keep it clean. you know what? I'm so proud to be your friend and, and, and be advised by you over the years. And you've been a great guy. You worked closely with Terry on lots of really cool stuff. And just wanted to say we really appreciate you and, and it's just an honor. It's been very cool to rub shoulders with you and learn from you all the time. And I really enjoy our conversations. You've been very forthright and, and we shared a lot of wisdom and knowledge over the years. And I look forward to that continuing. So thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks, Dan. And I'm not exactly sure what we were supposed to talk about. One of my three messages that I had to the graduating class one or two years ago, I, 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 think, I, I think I hit two of the three points here. But one of the points that you can relate to as well from your training as well as mine is the famous line of progress, not perfection. That's been probably the most challenging challenge that I face myself every day is 
that it's all right to be 80% right and and then fix that last 20% and get it 80% right and then fix that last little percentage to get 80% of it right. And at the end of the day, and a lot of the things, just like my answers I gave here today, I'm mad at myself right now because I want to answer it differently, but you had no idea that I want to answer your <laughs> questions differently. So You are uh, a perfectionist. I can see that. But you're in the stadium, my friend, as Elson Solberg would say, you're in the stadium. <laughs> you're in the, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the one thing is, one of the things that one of my previous bosses said to me in a previous company is progress. I was saying progress, not perfection. And he says, your standards are too high. And then a, a mentor of mine kind of said, well, you got two options with people. You can lower your standards and you can make, you can dumb things down or you can smarten things up. So if we think about this, if you want to dumb things down, that means you're making your peers dumber. But if you want to smarten people up, wouldn't that make people smarter? So this was actually one of the reasons why I sold my shares in this company in that I refuse to dumb things down. I refuse to actually say that you're at your maximum capacity to help yourself and to help the company. Let's, let's smarten you up and let's figure out how to smarten you up to make you a better person. If you're a better person, you're a better employee, you're a better contributor to the company, then it's going to be better meant for the company. So I'm very obsessed with not dumbing things down, lowering the standards about smartening things up. And again, it's a part of my whole progress, not perfection type of approach. I like it. It's a golden message and it is very inspirational. And I'm excited for Terry to listen to this because I know he's going to be swearing at me because you're, you're likely one of the folks that he wanted to interview on the podcast, but I keep keep at it and I keep beating him to it, but I'm sure he'll be listening and excited to hear your advice. And yeah, you are making progress. You're making progress on a lot of levels. And I think that's a great place to be in our lives when we, when we can really contribute something back yeah. that goes yeah. beyond ourselves in a really meaningful way. Because doing it for our own selfish interests, what we always start out doing, Jared, that always wears thin kind of in the end, like, and we get it, and but it's not enough, is it? But then when you realize, hey, at some point, it's not about you, we can do we can do a lot for others. Therefore, it's our responsibility to do as much as we can, and that involves making ourselves better. Yeah, you're onto something there. I like that progress, not perfection. Yeah. Anyways, it's something that we use. Something that I always challenge myself <laughs> on. I'm still not there yet. I still haven't accepted it myself, but it's still something that's written down in my book all the time when I start to get uh, frustrated with what I haven't done or what people haven't done. So let's just smart ourselves up and let's get closer to. Closer to, like you said, into the stadium. <laughs> We're there. We got there today, brother. Well, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you soon. You bet. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. We really appreciate that you would spend some of your valuable time with us. We would like to give a shout out to Stephen and Veronica and the whole team of Pod Sound School for their talent and hard work in editing and producing these episodes. Be sure to check them out at www.podsoundschool.com. Also, Nicole Doobie from Eberhard Egg Solutions. Thank you so much. Nicole's really passionate about making these episodes come to life and sharing them with you. Please, let's stay in touch. You can communicate with us on any of the social media platforms. You can also check us out on YouTube. And sign up for our newsletter, growingthefuturepodcast.ca, so you don't miss an episode. Do not forget to check out the Eberhard family of companies online to eberhardfarms.com suregrowth.ca, convergencegrowth.com, and aberhardagsolutions.ca. Links are in the episode notes. We would love to hear from you. Reach out and tell us what you like about the show or what we could do to improve upon this. And we will send you some free swag. Until next episode, folks, let's keep it real. 
growing the future together. Oh,